Welcome to Healthcare Unfiltered. This is your host, Shadi Nabhan. I'm a hematologist and medical oncologist, and I have interest in all aspects of healthcare delivery, treatment, leadership, mentorship, and policy. Look, today I am extremely privileged and lucky to host Dr. Sam Kulkarni, who is the chief executive officer of CRISPR Therapeutics. As an oncologist myself, I have been following the CRISPR technology for a while. I've been actually fascinated by this technology and what it could do. And uh, who is best to simplify this technology and explain to us what the future holds and where we are presently than the chief executive officer of CRISPR Therapeutics himself. You are going to meet an an inspirational leader, a scientist, Uh, someone who believes in the culture of people first and who is at the helm of a cutting-edge company called CRISPR Therapeutics. So you learn that Sam actually originally joined CRISPR Therapeutics in 2015 as chief business officer, and then he became the chief executive officer in 2017. Um, So I really invited Sam to the show. I wanted to know more about him, the person behind the title. Uh, what he does, and what drives him. And um, uh, again, it's really inspiring to to hear him speak and to talk not only about the science, but really about his vision for the future. And uh, I also wanted you to listen to this episode during the American Association of Cancer Research Week. Uh, This is AACR week. The week is filled with a lot of scientific advances, what people are uh, doing and what are the breakthrough technologies that exist currently. And um, it is great to host Dr. Sam Kulkarni on the Healthcare Unfiltered. I'm very grateful he took time of his extremely busy schedule uh, to uh, join me on the uh, show. So uh, before I air the episode that I taped with Dr. Uh, Sam Kulkarni, I would like to Plug the show. Make sure, first of all, visit my website, www.chadinabhan.com. Visit my YouTube channel, Healthcare Unfiltered, Chadi Nabhan and Healthcare Unfiltered. And don't forget to subscribe to the show, rate the show, write a brief review. By doing so, you are going to make the show easily searchable and accessible to many folks that uh, you, you, you know. So um, I'm very grateful for uh, the time that Dr. Sam Kulkarni gave me. And without further ado, Dr. Sam Kulkarni, the Chief Executive Officer of CRISPR Therapeutics on Healthcare Unfiltered. All right, folks. Well, uh, I am super excited today. Uh, I'm probably going to sound like a kid in a candy store because I have the pleasure of hosting Sam Kulkarni on uh, today's podcast. If you don't know who Sam is, you will, but you probably, I don't know where you've been living for the past several years. Um, So you're going to get to know Sam, the person, the individual, and then the leader, the executive, and the scientist. Um, Sam, uh, can't thank you enough for taking time of your busy schedule to be on my humble, modest, amateur healthcare unfiltered podcast. It's it's really a pleasure. I've followed your work uh, for a long time. I'm a big fan, as I told you before we we went on the air. I am applying for the job of president of uh, Sam's fan club, so make sure that um, nobody gets that job before I do. But let's start by just telling folks who are listening a little bit about you and, and who you are and and what you're currently doing and then I want to dig a little bit back into how you got to where you got where you are right now yeah thank you for having me on this podcast Chadi uh, it's a real pleasure yeah I'm excited to um, share my thoughts on industry our company and everything else that you asked me today um, my background so for those who don't know me I'm a CEO of CRISPR therapeutics I've been uh, CEO of CRISPR since 2017, and um, I joined CRISPR in 2015. Uh, it's almost seven years for me uh, at, at CRISPR Therapeutics. And um, I joined uh, from uh, McKinsey and Company, where I was a partner running the biotech practice. And uh, when I got to know CRISPR and understood the technology, this to me was this amazing opportunity that happens once in 
if not once in a lifetime, once in a generation, at least. Um, I'm a big uh, history buff, and, and I read a lot about the history of biotech. And if you look at the last 200 years, every 30 or 40 years, you've had a major discontinuity in how we think about medicine. And the last such time was in the uh, 80s when antibodies came to the fore. And um, since then, I think you haven't felt the same level of excitement if you ask a lot of the industry practitioners as you've had with CRISPR and some of the cutting edge therapies and combine that with mRNA and all the other modalities that are uh, becoming a reality now. And there's a real opportunity to reimagine medicine and rethink how we, how what we think about as drugs in the conventional sense versus what we want to develop, which are, you know, one-time procedures that can give you a cure, things that treat the underlying disease as opposed to symptoms and completely change the way we think about healthcare. Um, and so I was very excited about the opportunity and it's been an exciting uh, seven years at CRISPR for me. So Sam at McKinsey, uh, you're a partner, but uh, basically, you were uh, you were providing consulting services to CRISPR. That's how you got to know the uh, the company. And I know I'm frozen, but it will work out. No, I, I actually uh, CRISPR wasn't formed at the time. Um, and at McKinsey, in you know, the journey is you you start as an associate, and I, I joined McKinsey after my PhD. Um, and um, you you work your way through, and but in the process, you advise many different companies. Um, a lot of them large pharma companies you know, or mid-cap companies that can actually afford consultants uh, as opposed to small companies that are starting out. But I had a real interest in biotech and uh, I was in the Bay Area where a number of biotech companies were being formed and developed and, and were growing right in front of my eyes. And I wanted to be part of that, that growth. And so I took time out of um, all the work I was doing for bigger companies to say, I want to help smaller companies. You know. Um, we probably won't be able to charge the same fees that we do for bigger companies, but, but that's okay. This is where the exciting stuff's happening. Um, so I, I fondly remember the days I would, you know, drive down to South San Francisco or East Bay and, and sit down with the management teams of biotech companies and work through all aspects of, of uh, how they're thinking about their portfolio, their growth, um, organization, et cetera. And, and it became, um, it was very exciting. I mean, a number of these companies tried to hire me, but I kept saying, no, I'm happy understanding the entire landscape, learning from different companies and seeing how things technologies are evolving and have my hand in many different platforms. But um, when CRISPR came calling, uh, it just happened uh, by coincidence. I think uh, I knew some of the board members of other companies that I was working with that were on the board of CRISPR as the company was being formed. And that was the connection. Um, one of them in particular was Worsen Ventures. And, um, and uh, once I started learning more about the company, it was uh, game over. Uh, I, I was like, I have to be part of this. Was it the, the technology that uh, drew you in? Like, you know, what, what, what were, I mean, at the time, the technology was a little bit not as mature as it is in 2022. Yeah, there, there are actually uh, two things. You know, I think it was the combination of the technology challenge with the business challenge. Um, you know, I think if you look at different biotech companies, there's various types of companies. Many of them, a large majority of the biotech companies that are public today um, have one or two assets. You know, you have one asset, you build a team around it, you prosecute the clinical trials and you see if it works or it doesn't work, you know, and the process sometimes when it works, you end up selling it to big pharma. So it's sort of this, you know, program by program basis. Whereas with the platform like CRISPR, it's very broad, has so much potential that you have a blank canvas in terms of how you want to build a company. And if you look at the trajectories of the antibody companies, you know, you had Genentech, you had Abgenics, you had uh, companies that ended up becoming that Amgen acquired, there were companies like MedRx, you know, the Cambridge Antibody Technologies. They all took different strategies around what they wanted to do with the technology and all ended up having different outcomes, right? Not every company became a Genentech that treated tens of thousands of patients and had tremendous impact on humanity. Um, and a lot of those choices were choices around portfolio, choices around how you build a company, um, and choices around the culture you put in place. And to me, that combination of having the business challenge, 
for CRISPR together with the technology challenge with vast potential, uh, but, uh, but you know, ways to make it work across indications that drew me to the, uh, to, to the company and, and to the role. But then once I got here, I think it's really been about uh, just the, the possibilities, you know, the possibilities of changing people's lives, changing the way we think about medicine, providing cures, and the fulfillment that goes with it is just immeasurable. So let's talk a little bit about the CRISPR technology, because, you know, um, not everyone who's listening to this show is, uh, has a PhD, and not everybody really understands genes and all of these things. So we're going to try just to simplify it just a little bit, just to try to explain what is it exactly that you guys do at CRISPR? Yeah, the, the technology itself, and, you know, uh, I, I'll tell you, a lot of people talk about CRISPR, but half of them won't be able to say what CRISPR stands for because it's kind of an arcane acronym. It stands for Clustered Regularly Interspaced Short Palindromic Repeats. Yeah, that and should be a Jeopardy. That could be a Jeopardy. <laughs> one day it should be like a Jeopardy one. It, it, it actually has been, I think. But, um, you know, the, the interesting thing is it's, it's basically came out of bacteria. I think Emmanuel Charpentier was working on strep throat, the bacteria that causes strep throat. And what she observed was these bacteria that get attacked by viruses or phages, they generally die. But some of these bacteria survive. And if they survive once, they survive again. And the reason for that is these bacteria, dumb as they may look, actually are much smarter than we think. And they have a immune system built in. And the way the immune system works is that when they're attacked by viruses, if they survive, they take out a snippet of the viral DNA and store it in an accordion-like region inside their own genome. And this accordion-like region is where the name CRISPR comes from. It's short uh, repeats, repeat regions that are palindromic. And within the file folder that's in the bacterial genome, they store the viral DNA. And the next time they get attacked, they can remember that and use a pair of molecular scissors called Cas9, uh, which, is a, a, which attaches itself to an RNA to cut at a site-specific uh, place in the viral genome and inactivate it. So it's this amazingly elegant system that's sitting right in front of our eyes in the bacteria, but no one unlocked it until Emmanuel Charpentier and Jennifer Doudna did the foundational work to say, aha, now, what you have is a pair of molecular scissors attached to a barcode. You know, we've always had molecular scissors. You know, we've been cutting DNA for a very long time. In the 60s, late 60s, you had restriction enzymes. Um, and in the 70s, there was the most famous one of them, ECOR1, was figured out and discovered. But they would cut all over the um, DNA. You know, you don't have a site-specific way of doing it. And now you have a molecular scissor with the 20 base pair or so code attached to it, you know, think about our passwords in that we use, you know, six to eight characters, and they're quite secure. This one is 20 base pairs long. So it's only in specific places in genome that you make a cut. So that's the evolution of CRISPR-Cas9 as a technology, as a molecular scissors barcode. And today, what people have realized is actually it can be a molecular truck with the barcode. The Cas9 can be inactivated. So you make the scissors blunt, so they don't cut the DNA, but they still do the job of bringing bringing cargo to the place you want to make any changes or manipulate the, the genome. And you can attach, you know, transcriptases, you can at attach um, other deaminases or other proteins to the Cas9. And all of a sudden you've created a site-specific way of affecting the genome structure, uh, whether it's directly or epigenetically. And <clears throat> it's become this very powerful mechanism by which we're able to fundamentally write genes. You know, it was in the 19, early 1900s that we discovered that we have DNA or that there's genes in our body. That's where a lot of these words came up. The, the word gene came up during that time frame, And it took us about 40 years until the 1950s to figure out what the structure of the DNA was. And this is the basis of the Nobel Prize for Watson and Crick. Um, but, you know, now we're 100 years out of from having known that we can actually, that there are things called a gene or called DNA to where we can write DNA now or write the gene. And it's a quantum step forward for humanity. The, the impact and the magnitude of which we won't understand in the moment, 
when we look back at it 40, 50 years from now, we're going to go back and say, this was the time, this was the decade where we learned how to write genes. You know, you're speaking of the genes and, you know, 20 years ago, the, the, you know, the, this, the genome was sequenced and, um, but there was something in the media just over the past couple of days about everything has been decoded. And, and I mean, you saw that, right? I mean, like, I was just seeing all of the wires uh, yesterday or the day before that everything has been decoded um, and listening to you and, and talking about the genome and all of these, I mean, honestly, 50 years ago, if you told people that this is where we're going to be, I think they will think about science fiction movie. I mean, cutting, I mean, cutting the, you know, DNA and putting things and changing things. Um, it's fascinating. It's absolutely amazing. And I, I wonder, you know, you watch these science fiction movies about medicine in the future and, you know, robots and everything else, but you know, it may not be that way. You know, we've gotten it wrong before. You know, for those who watch Back to the Future, we will all be flying around on little uh, skateboards today or, or Minority Report, but that's not where we are. You know, we've made a lot of progress on payment mechanisms and social media. So future evolves differently. So, you know, people now think of oh, the future of modern medicine is robots. They just go in and boom, it scans you and you, you get fixed. Maybe it's, it's, maybe it's not that way. It's going to be someone, your sequence already built in. You go in and you say, okay, here's the DNA change that you need to make. And all of a sudden, um, you've fixed an underlying disease or you changed your molecular metabolism to fix diabetes, for instance, um, or you've changed your heart attack risk so you, you live longer and don't get heart attacks. I think all those things are going to happen at that molecular level, quite unseen, and it may be anticlimactic to the movie makers because all this is happening at a mi microscopic level or, or, or nanoscale, in, in fact. Um, but it could really change how we think about medicine. So, so uh, when you think about CRISPR then and the technology um, and you think of your stakeholders, your stakeholders are not, I mean, who are your stakeholders? They, they're not necessarily just in the oncology markets, right? I mean, you can really span biomedicine altogether if you're able to find that unique signature that driving diabetes or alzheimer's whatever it is am i am i am i onto something there or no no absolutely i think that's the that's the power of the technology and when i was talking to this about, about the blank canvas we had in terms of the portfolio right you know you can go after oncology, you can go after neurological diseases, you can go after cardiovascular diseases. The, the strategy we adopted at CRISPR was to start with the rare disease that's well characterized. Um, you know, this is sickle cell and thalassemia. In fact, you know, you're, you're in Chicago. I know Chicago was where we first discovered that sickle cell exists and it's a molecular disease. And um, this was a visiting patient from the Caribbean where it was identified. and you know, it's been 60 plus years since we know that sickle cell is caused by a single mutation in the genome, typically afflicting the black population and nothing's been done about it. You know, there hasn't been, you know, there haven't been major efforts in big pharma to come up with the drug. And finally, we're at a point where we say, look, there's something we can do with the CRISPR technology. And so our first effort was in, in sickle cell and thalassemia and thalassemia is a another disease that's been around for hundreds, if not thousands of years, actually came, you know, the people think it originated in the, um, in the uh, Mediterranean region. Uh, and as the armies moved around, the disease was carried around. In fact, you can look at trace war history a little bit by the incidence of thalassemia. Um, and, and um, you know, as we look at those diseases, they're, eminently fixable with a simple change in the genome. And we're using CRISPR-Cas9 on a patient-by-patient -patient basis. So we take each patient's cells from the bone marrow, send it to our manufacturing facility, make that tiny change in their genome, send the cells back, and put it back into the patient. And it's a one-time procedure, and the patients then should be cured, um, or at least get a functional cure. And so it's a very powerful concept. So we started there with, the, with that indication. And then we looked and said, where all can CRISPR be applicable? You know, there's, let's take these broad imaginative bets that are visionary and let's go after common diseases where we can help and treat thousands of patients. 
So if you look at the biggest killers today, or the biggest causes of death, uh, number one is cardiovascular disease. Number two is oncology. Um, and number three, in many ways, is diabetes. Even though it's not directly ascribed to diabetes, diabetes is up there as one of the big ones. Uh, so we started three different efforts. You know, one in oncology, where we say, let's train the immune system to kill cancers, but not on a patient-by-patient -patient basis because it's not scalable. You know, there's so many oncology patients out there. Let's do it where we take a healthy person's immune system, retrain it, to go kill cancers in the patient. And we'll talk more about that, but that's one fundamental bet around smart cells as the vehicles for uh, in the fight against cancer. The second bet is there are organs that are failing, like in diabetes, islet cells are failing, your pancreas are failing. Why not create organs off the shelf? You know, let's, let's put, let's take uh, pluripotent stem cells or, or embryonic stem cells engineer them and direct their fate into whatever organ we want it to be. And then let's simply replace organs. If someone's, someone has a bad pancreas and they're, they're not able to control their glucose levels, let's create an artificial pancreas and insert it into the body. So there's organs off the shelf. That's the second bet we're making. And then in, in vivo, what we're doing is taking the CRISPR-Cas9 molecular scissors, injecting it directly into the body. And there we go after a number of rare and common diseases you know, common diseases like cardiovascular, rare diseases like specific um, uh, disease like GST1A, where you put the molecular machinery into the body to fix it once and for all, right? So those are the big sort of thematic bets we have. And I'll, I can talk more about each of those, but all each of those in their own can be a company or can be a, you know, huge portfolio of drugs, but they can all change the way we think about medicine. No, I like that. And I probably would like you to talk a little bit, maybe a couple of minutes about each one of those, because it's really intriguing. But before you do that, um, so is it, so you have the technology that drives how you can modify certain things is, and maybe I missed it, is also part of the thought process is I want to identify the actual um, pathogenesis behind the actual disease. Is there a is there an arm that is really looking, take disease X, where we don't know why it happens. We don't know the actual mutation that is really driving that particular disease. Are you trying to also identify the mutations and go after the mutations? Or are you going after diseases that the mutation is identified? You're just trying to manipulate the gene to, uh, to, tr to treat it or to change it. Uh, yeah, bit of both. I think, you know, always makes sense early on to start with something that's more validated. Um, so, you know, in the case of diabetes, type 1 diabetes, for instance, we kind of know that you can do islet cell transplants. This was something that was uh, first figured out in Canada. Um, and um, they, they did this protocol where they would take cadaveric islet cells and immunosuppress the patient and just inject those cells into the portal vein. And those patients were insulin dependent after these uh, injections. So there's some de-risking that's happened, right? And then you look at uh, some pathways where you know the genes underlying it and especially rare diseases, um, or in the, case of, in the case of sickle cell disease, there were a lot of patients who actually have uh, naturally occurring elevated levels of fetal hemoglobin and so we can look at history and say, oh, this happens in patients and it's fine for them. And they're, you know, even though they have the sickle gene, they're asymptomatic. So let's take that, take that knowledge and validation into our programs. So I think the early efforts are validated genes. But then we also do these large screens and we're going into the world of AI in a way where we take thousands of mice, for instance, and knock out genes in random. Uh, let's take an indication like NASH. Uh, we don't know exactly what causes it. We don't know what the genes are that are underlying the disease. It's maybe more than one gene. So what if we just pairwise just knock out a bunch of genes and see what happens, right? And, and, and see which ones may be most implicated. Same with cardiovascular disease. Now, you don't have, always have the best models in vivo to do it, uh, but to the extent possible, we can, we can do the screens and then characterize those genes. Right. Um, so it's in a phase wise approach. I think our first foray is in the engineering realm to uh, innovate around known validated pathways and targets. Our second uh, 
you know, phase as a company is going to be a lot of biological innovation where we use the tool to significantly accelerate our understanding of genes and genomes. And it's happening not just with us, by the way, I'm on the board of a company called Repair Therapeutics, where they do synthetic lethality. They use massively parallel CRISPR screens to say which combination of two genes, when you knock them out, can lead to cancer killing, right? The, the cancer cells will die automatically. And so, so then you have, you know, you can take two medicines or one medicine and say, if this person has this mutation, and I knock off this other pathway, that cancer cell is going to signal to kill itself, right? In apoptosis. So there's different ways to imagine how we use this, this uh, massively parallel screening. And we're just scratching the surface at this point. You know, I, I would imagine that, you know, as, as chief executive officer, there are all, you know, no matter how many resources you have, you don't have infinite resources, right? I mean, you have to make decisions. So as you decide, for example, to go after diseases, and I think you told me about sickle cell and thalassemia, which has made sense because you're going after a specific target. Do you decide I'm going to do, um, I'm going to target uh, oncology, and then maybe in two years, I'll go after cardiovascular. In four years, I go after neuro neuroscience and so on. Is that part of how you think about it or is it more and this is again this is just is like opportunistic you see you hear about something something discovered let's just shift and pivot like how i'm curious to see how some of these decisions are being made because you can't really you know you can't do it all so you have to do it uh, gradually i'm presuming you know maybe you can just tell me if i'm wrong <laughs> no I, I think you have to pick and choose not just from a dollars and cents perspective but from a bandwidth perspective you know you, you know yeah right. uh, even big companies can only focus on so many diseases so many indications now the the advantage we have you know if if 20 years ago if crispr had been discovered and we'd gone out there and said i need three billion dollars to take this platform make it a reality and i need that money before you see the first hint of data people would have laughed you out of the room you know, you just didn't have the mechanisms to underwrite, you know, this kind of research or this scale of research as a independent company. You know, people said, well, go work at Pfizer. Now, I think we were in the last five years, we were in this unbelievable sort of era of capital markets where, where capital was permissive. And so, you know, in the lifetime of CRISPR, we've raised over three billion dollars now. We've put over a billion dollars to work. So in many ways, it wasn't just the resourcing that was the 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 constraint it was also can you find the people to work on different diseases do we have the bandwidth to focus on all these things now that said i think that you know we still live in a symbiotic world with um with the capital markets with wall street you know i think uh when we pick a certain indication we have to show some form of progress or validation to continue the promise Right. So I think when we showed the early data with sickle cell and thalassemia and showed how breakthrough this can be, we gained the license to do more. And then we said, okay, let's do oncology. And then when we see oncology where we have allogeneic CAR T's provide durable remissions in patients suffering from, you know, uh, lymphomas, let's say CD19 positive lymphomas who failed RCHOP and you see durable remissions, then you gain the license to say, can you do more? So that's when we, you know, you know, they, they don't always occur in serial fashion, obviously. Then we started doing diabetes and now we're pushing hard on in vivo. But the second part of your question is there's, there is an element of opportunistic uh, pivoting or opportunistic change of course along the way. For instance, in in vivo, you know, one of our peer companies showed data in an indication called TTR, where, you know, you can put the CRISPR-Cas9 directly into the liver and make an edit and achieve very high reduction of TTR. And that's very powerful. All of a sudden, this notion of in vivo editing becomes a reality. So we're pivoting there to say, let's push very hard and start 10 different programs in in vivo indications. And let's get them to a point where we see data in humans. We can always choose to not take it all the way to a, a approval and partner it before that, or say, we'll take it to approval, but then we don't want to be the ones commercializing it because, you know, I, I don't know that the world needs t another 10 commercial sales force, you know, in, in biotech. I think, you know, there's big pharma equipped to do that. So we can always trade it later on 
but in the process you've created value and opened up the platform. And so it's a very careful calculus. I think if you look at the history of biotechs and I did a sampling of about 40 companies, you know, 25 or so failed and not all of them failed because they, the science was not good or the, the platform was bad. It was because they had, uh, they made decisions around capital investments that sometimes overreached. They said, let's spend all this money and see what happens. Uh, or they didn't take the right level of risk. Uh, if you don't take risk, you know, they don't get the reward. So I think, you know, that calibration of the resources required to see it through to the next events or to enterprise value creation in a careful fashion with the right mix of risk and risk balance is what it takes ultimately in terms of portfolio planning. I know there are a lot of buzzwords in there, but no, no, but no. But you know, basically, uh, that's how decisions are made. But no, no, th this is great. But uh, you know what? What fascinates me about you, Sam, actually just listening to you, you really like history, and um, and I think it's actually great. Not only because knowing the history allows you, in my opinion, I'm sure in yours as well, to understand the present and really plan for the future. I mean, you you've actually several times as I'm listening to you, you bring examples from the past. And if anything, at least as uh, in listening to you, clearly you um, you are a history buff. I think that's official for now. I mean, I could totally tell. Um, so, so, so then in the calculus, do you look at how long it takes for whatever product you're working on to go to market? Because ultimately, whether it's investors, whether it's whatever it is, time to market is, is very important. And, um, you know, we hear figures all over the place for us who are not in your position. We, we hear sometimes it takes 10 years time to market. It takes, some people say, no, now we take like two, three years. So how do you, um, are there opportunities? Are, are there things that you could do to, to reduce the time to market? And, and in your answer, one of the things I, I always struggle with, in fact, my next podcast, pod, there's a podcast I'm airing on clinical trials, which is it takes a long time to do randomized controlled trials, whether it is therapeutics, diagnostics, or technology, right? Whatever it is. So sometimes we just can't. We have to do real-world data, real-world evidence, and so on. So how do you, A, reduce time to market? Because, you know, you need to. And number two, are you able to do that without always prospective, randomized controlled trials, whatever the product or the technology is? Yeah, I think this has been a much-discussed uh, topic. You know, what are the costs of getting a drug approved and how long does it take? Um, in our own experience, you know, in sickle cell and thalassemia, we would have moved quite rapidly. We started the program in 2015. And if all goes well, we should, you know, hopefully we'll be in the market in the next couple of years. Um, we're hoping to file a BLA this year. Now that's still eight years. And this was without doing of the classic phase one, phase two, phase three, right? We just said the first in man trial becomes the registrational trial. Uh, so there's notion of go slow to go fast. You know, it takes longer to get to the clinical trial, but when you get to the clinical trial, you're so confident in the product that you start a registrational trial to get to market, right? Now, that's not often the case in many places, many indications, because you need to do dose finding, you need to, you know, identify the appropriate time, you know, time interval for dosing, et cetera. And so I, you know, while there's been much uh, talk about how, it's reduced the amount of time to get drugs approved. We're not seeing that in the industry. It's still taking around eight years. Now, with some of the rare indications, I think the regulators are being a little more sort of uh, forward leaning to say you can start trials early or have a smaller sample set for pa of patients where you can get approved or get accelerated approval. But I think you're still seeing the you know reasonable level of capital investment, um, close to a billion dollars to get a drug approved. Um, and and taking seven to eight years. Now, in the future, the hope is that we will be able to have better animal models or better preclinical data that give us more certainty around dose and around how we take a program forward and get to market sooner. Um, but it's never going to be one or two years. You know, it'll still be five, six years. That's just the nature of doing clinical trials. And having, even if you dose every patient, 
day one, if you need to observe them for three years, it's gonna be a three-year clinical trial. Now, the real-world evidence has been interesting, and especially in oncology. It's helped a lot in expanding the label. If you start with one indication, you wanna to go to other indications there, it's actually been very helpful. But to get the first approval, it's been very difficult. I don't think, you know, obviously don't have real-world data if you get, don't have the first approval, but there are some, so there are some instances where real-world data have helped get drugs approved and, and, and expand the label, but they're still few and far between. So I think there's, you know, there's still a lot of tension between how the regulators think about safety versus what patients deserve uh, and the general view of, of risk reward in, in clinical trials. Um, I think, you know, COVID showed us that we can actually move much faster than what have been prescribed timelines. You know, drugs were, you know, these vaccines were approved in less than two years. And can we bring the same level of urgency to some other indications where patients are waiting, you know, take ALS or take some, some of these neurological indications that ophthalmo ophthalmological and neurological indications where, you know, every day you wait, you know, disease is getting worse. It's a progressive disease and not to mention oncology and these patients deserve some of these drugs. I mean, what, again, I mean, I said that earlier, what fascinates me about what you're doing and the technology, it is just not oncology specific. To me, this is really fascinating. It is so scalable to any disease that you're able to identify these targets and whether it's going to be you who identifies these targets or somebody else, but uh, it's fascinating to me that you've got a technology that can span many disciplines. To me, this is really uh, fascinating. But uh, for listeners who don't think I do any homework, I did a little bit of homework, guys. And I did listen to one of your interviews on a different podcast. Um, um, and, and one of the things that you mentioned, which intrigued me, is that you said, in order to have a little bit of a faster time to market, you need to have better bets, uh, better bets. Like you have to bet a little bit better. And I think you alluded a little bit on AI and so on. So tell us about this. You were, you were an AI skeptic at some point in your life. And uh, then you grew to believe in AI or machine learning. And how does this really help you in do better bets into what are you going to target, what disease and so on? Yeah, I, I think, you know, I'm still a big believer in empirical data as opposed to um, models. You know, I think I did, you know, years ago, I did uh, my internship in at AstraZeneca actually doing computer-aided drug design. You know, you look at the molecules, the protein, and see what docks in, which, which molecules work and don't work. But ultimately, you know, the bi biology is very complex, and you actually had to do the experiments in animal models to say, you know, is this worth something or not? And, and then that carried over for me. And with CRISPR, what's changed is that, you know, there's two ways of looking at AI. I think, you know, let's take a field goal kicker and you say, gosh, I'm going to have this kicker kick a thousand times under different conditions, wind, you know, humidity, et cetera, et cetera. And it's, it's going to be a model that's developed that'll tell you exactly on a particular day which way to kick the, the football so that it goes through the goalposts, right? So that's one model of AI that's more espoused in the tech industry. But the model we're, we're doing is, why don't we use AI to just make the field goal, the, you know, the, the uprights be farther apart so the field goal is easier. And the way we do that is, again, by saying, we don't know which targets matter in this indication or this disease. Let's just knock out or knock in hundreds of these in various, in, in a randomized fashion. So any cell line, any particular cell will have one or two of these, but not all of these. And so then we'll know what matters. And then we use complex algorithms to say which ones of those matter, because you have to, you know, then impute from the data in a pairwise fashion, which ones ultimately matter more than others. And from that, you can, you know, we found an edit, for instance, that says our CAR Ts, which are, trained immune cells to kill the cancer can be made much more potent by making a couple of edits that are not so obvious. And so that came out of that. Now, is it technically AI? You know, is it really something where we fed data and as we feed more data, the machine gets more smarter? I don't know. But all I know is there's a lot of data generated. And by using smart algorithms, we got something that we normally would have taken years to figure out. 
And, um, and I think that notion to me is powerful. And so we're doing more and more of that in terms of large screens uh, in a responsible fashion, of course. But that's going to become important as we, you know, as we get more and more companies espousing it. So we all learn from each other and the community gets smarter. I think we also haven't had a big influx of talent from the tech industry into biotech yet. And I think once that happens, that'll also help because, you know, all said and done, I don't think people who are core biotech are going to be the ones that really advance the, the data and the algorithm piece of this. It's going to be people from the tech industry that come in and, and take on that uh, effort. We'll do some more fun uh, questions in a little bit, but I'm curious to think what, um, what technologies are you kind of eyeing in the next five to 10 years as, as, as excite you? I mean, obviously, clearly your technology and so on, but you can't have all of the technologies. What other things you're, you're, you're looking at that are really um, kind of, you think, um, not necessarily complementary or anything, but technologies in healthcare in general that you think are um, important to, to follow or just keep a close eye on? No, absolutely. I think it's, you know, you mentioned, you know, kid in a candy store. I think that's what's happening in biotech these days. There's so many different technologies that are emerging. And the question is, which ones are going to be most powerful? You know, I think CRISPR and gene editing, I think, is going to be a very powerful technology that's here to stay. You know, there may be different advances around gene editing that allow you to do single base pairs or 200 base pairs or gene insertions, et cetera, beyond the, the basic technology. But editing of the DNA is here to stay, right? There's a lot of power in technologies like mRNA or the intermediates. You know, if you look at, think about the classical dogma of life, our code of life is in the DNA, gets translated to mRNA that then translates to proteins that do all the work in our bodies. So there's a whole host of technologies with mRNA or in the intermediate phase from DNA where you can look at manipulating genes or changing the signaling, right? So that's the second place. Obviously, vaccines come in over there as well. And then at the protein level, I think there are new technologies emerging like protein degradation, where you can target it in a targeted fashion, degrade certain proteins. Now, it's not new, but it's just become that much more precise in terms of which proteins to target to what levels, et cetera. So that's an exciting place. And then for all this to work, there's a orthogonal axis around delivery. How do you deliver this into the right organs of interest to have the action happen in the liver, say, or in the eyes or in the brain? And that's an orthogonal enabler to, to all that we're doing. And then finally, the big other big one is, is pluripotent stem cells. You know, I think we talk a lot about aging. We talk about longevity. And I was at a conference recently where, you know, people asked, how many people want to live to 150 years? And then obviously the question was, in what condition? You know, yes. let's say you can live in the same condition that you may be at 60 all the way to 150. You know, most people raise their hands. I think, um, and I think there are ways to get there. It may not be one silver bullet, but let's say you reduce cardiovascular risk in all people because you know they're known markers. All of a sudden, you've added 10 years of life to the average population. Uh, you take away, the, you, you bring in the ability to take stem cells, and a lot of people are banking their core blood, et cetera, now for their kids. Um, if you have stem cells where you can just regenerate organs, then you added another 20 years of life. And so this, the, the other bucket that I would put there is IPS technology or induced pluripotent stem cells. So the way I think about CRISPR a little bit is like how, you know, Alphabet and Google, I think you may have a parent company, but all these technologies underneath it, A to Z that then contribute towards each of the indications we want to go after. And so we live in a world of riches when it comes to technologies these days, um, but we have to make smart use of it. Well, on behalf of listeners, I'm going to tell you, please find us uh, something that will help anti-aging and anti-wrinkles, please. That's really, let's keep it real, okay? That's really what we care about at this point. So um, Sam, what's, what's a day in the life of a chief executive officer look like like what i mean what time do you wake up how how does how many hours do you work what does your day look like yeah i know i think you know it's very hard to characterize i've gotten this question before but you know it's it's day-to-day -day defers a lot because of the nature of the job i think you know that but overall i'm very structured i spend probably a third of my time 
with my team or with the employees of the company because ultimately our organization's only as good as the people and 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 what their impact is going to be and so we want to make sure they have a good operating environment uh you know they're all feeling like they're having impact they feel like there's a supportive leadership uh and they're getting what they want so i think that's number one for me is how the organization works and what the organizational health is um i do spend uh a second uh, third of my time i think with external stakeholders i think that's whether it's you know uh, investors, whether it's people in the, you know, in government, payers, investigators, you know, there's a whole host of people that are helping us, including regulators, and that are all bringing this technology to the fore, right? It takes a village, as they say. And I think being part of that network, being part of the ecosystem, and uh, under learning about new technologies, about learning about new developments, learning about regulatory paradigm in the US, EU, et cetera, is all very important. And so I spend, you know, one third of my time there. And then the remaining third really is about good decisions. You know, I think ultimately my charge as CEO is, is you know, number one, I have to make sure there's sustainability for the company. So there's, there's money coming in to support all the things we're trying to do, good strategy behind it. And the strategy needs to incorporate competitive advantage but ultimately a third of it is good decision making and so thinking about you know just reading thinking preparing for good decisions i think is a big part of my job so that's how roughly my time divides it's very hard to say what happens on a day-to-day basis you know yeah you know one day i'm doing a lot of internal meetings another day it's you know no, no, no. i i think that really is helpful you know what what also intrigued me in what you said is the um, you know, spending time with the people that are working at the company. How big is CRISPR now? Like, how many employees do you guys have? It's it's about 500 people at CRISPR. And by the way, you know, we have CDMOs and other partners working on our programs. So I just calculated there's about 800 people touching our programs, one way or another. And that's a you know incredible resource and workforce. One of my favorite um, statements that I've learned. Um, is culture eats strategy for breakfast and really it is it is so important and just listening to you the fact that you really care about just spending time look at the operational aspect make sure the organizational aspect is really important gives me an insight about the culture that you are building and continue to build because it's really important um um, and, and and it shows from listening to you but uh I think we can both agree that COVID-19 did actually challenge every organization and every culture under the sun. I mean, it is very, you know, it's once in a hundred years, maybe in a lifetime, something like this happens. And we've all been impacted. I've been impacted. You've been impacted, family, leaders, and so on. How do you handle something like this? Like, you know, how, I mean, it's not like you wake up in the morning and you are ready for once in a hundred years pandemic. Uh, I'm just curious as to, as a leader, as somebody who clearly cares about people, when you're faced with something like this, how do you how do you approach it, and what do you try to do, and what have you done? Yeah, you know, you know, candidly, I will say that if I look at 2020 and 2021, 2021 was more challenging than 2020 for us in a way from a culture standpoint. Even though you had vaccines and people felt less you know, worried and they were more secure, you know, in 2020, I think as COVID hit, everybody rallied, right? They're like, let's find a new way of working together. Let's do these Zoom meetings. Let's do, um, let's let's over-communicate to make sure we're still getting tough stuff done. We continue to, you know, uh, move in the manufacturing facility. Our, our lab people never stopped coming in. Um, so things were, things were moving, but, and, you know, 2021, especially the second half, I think there was definitely fatigue. You know, people were tired of not seeing other people, not having the personal interaction, you know, or zoomed in terms of meetings, et cetera. And, but this year has been great. I think we've started, you know, bringing people together again in, in big groups. We just had on a couple of days ago, we had 200 people at the company. I think for the first time, I had to use a microphone to speak to the company <laughs> in a long time. And the energy is palpable. You know, people are excited to come back. 
maybe not five days a week, but people are excited to come back and start interacting and feed, feed off the energy of each other. I personally feed off the energy of all the scientists here at CRISPR and I hear about the experiments and I just it gets me excited. And I think we're, we're happy to be back and I hope that, you know, we don't have another COVID crisis, but, but um, it's a very important part of, of um, building a company. We need to have a strong culture, but an energized culture and a productive culture. You know, we've heard, uh, and this happened in healthcare, probably on the provider side. I'm not really sure I have data on the industry side, but uh, we've heard about the great resignation. Um, you've heard about the concept, right? Um, lots of physicians, nurses, and just healthcare providers did actually, some of them just simply resigned and just went home and they just said, I'm done. People who could retire, they retired, all of these things. Don't have any figures about industry-wise, but have, have you seen anything like this, whether it is internally or even like in your colleagues in the same industry where there has been more than expected attrition because of the pandemic? Um, yeah, I think turnover by all measures has gone up in Boston and other places as well. I think people, you know, because they're at home and they have time, they've looked at other opportunities to say, you know, should we go somewhere else? Now, fortunately for us at CRISPR, we're bound by such a strong mission about what we're trying to do. And we're also excited to have our hands on this technology. I, I think it just, you know, it's been different. I think people are still very excited about what we're doing. Um, you know, obviously we've had some people leave here and there, but, you know, we had this new manufacturing facility that we just opened. That's a GMP facility here in Boston. And the level of excitement that goes with something like that is momentous. And I just keep thinking back to, you know, if I had all the money in the world, what would I want to do? I want to do this job. I think this is to be at the vanguard of, of the most cutting edge technology that we may see in our lifetime is just very exciting and it's just very fulfilling at the same time. And I think uh, we continue to remain excited as a company about what we're doing. Uh, it's great to get back to work, uh, but we need to maintain that energy and, and excitement going forward. And for listeners, you did notice that he lives in Boston, which means he's a Patriots fan, right? Right? No, you know, as you oh, always no, say. No, no, no. <laughs> I like the Patriots, but you know what happens is, you know, I moved here to the U.S. for grad school. And typically, you know, what you've seen is the first port of entry is where you develop your fandom. Just like you're a Patriots fan, Chadi, I'm a Seahawks fan. Oh, you you'll never forget that uh, that uh, was his Russell Wilson when what he did when he did Malcolm Butler. <laughs> I, I uh, will never forget that, and uh, I believe the Seahawks are in rebuilding mode. So I'm going to be supportive throughout the next few years as they rebuild. So my last question to you is: is um, do you are you able to? to shut down completely and let's say you go on five days vacation and just throw your phone away. Don't, I mean, are you able to do this? Um, I'm going to guess not, but you tell me. No, I think it's, it's a little, you know, I, I, I can't take long vacations anymore. I think when I <laughs> previously at, at McKinsey or whatever else you could do that, you know, it's like project, you know, you do projects and you end it and you can take a break before starting the next thing here. I think I can take, you know, I can take, three, four, two, three days off or three, four days off. But, but I think there is enough going on all the time that it's very hard to unplug for two weeks, let's say. But that said, you know, at, at CRISPR, we've now instituted this thing. If you've been here six to seven years, you get to take a six-week sabbatical at some point. So we're, we've actually had some employees now take six weeks off to, you know, not just to go lay on the beach, you know, find some passion or some excitement. You know, we just had an employee who did a, a sailing course and learn how to sail or, you know, someone else wanted to learn something else. And so you can do that. So I, at some point I've, I've, I've said, I'm going to do that. Uh, I don't know if you know this, but that doesn't apply to you. I mean, I, I, I'm going to tell you, I mean, I hate to break <laughs> the news, but that sabbatical <laughs> thing doesn't apply to you. Sam, before uh, this has been so enjoyable to me, it's, it's, I, I don't want to let you go, but uh, I have to, but uh, anything I should have asked you that you think listeners need to know, whether it's about you, about, CRISPR about the technology. I mean, I these are things that just cross my mind. But sometimes I may not be. Um, I may have forgotten something that you really think is important. Whether it's a message, it's something you want to share with folks who are viewing this or listening to this. 
Yeah, there, there's one thing, you know, I, I like to say, and I know you're not from the U.S. originally, and neither am I. I think, um, you know, a lot of our efforts end up focusing on the half a billion or so population or, you know, less than a billion population that are in privileged countries. You know, I think there's six billion other people there that don't have access to these medicines. And it is a responsibility that the industry needs to carry with itself to make these affordable and accessible uh, to the developing world. And the predominant way companies have thought about that, the big pharma has thought about that is, okay, we'll make a lot of money in the US and Europe. And then at some point, as it gets close to its patent life, we'll make it available in you know, countries like India or Thailand or Africa, whatever else, right? But that model, I think is not the way we want to do this. You know, look at how, you know, Tesla's or Elon Musk, I think you start with the high end, but then you make the model, you know, other models that become more affordable and more broad based. Everybody has the right to get these, you know, modern car T's for instance. And so using technology to make costs cheaper or using modalities that allow us to apply these therapies in, in parts of the world that is not as privileged is actually another important thing for me personally. I think we've, we have a project with the Gates Foundation to do in vivo gene editing for sickle cell and thalassemia and, and HIV, for instance, for primarily targeted towards um, underprivileged areas. You know, it may not work in the Western world, but something where we can advance gene editing there. Uh, I ultimately want to build these CAR-T capabilities. Um, for instance, you know, India is a great place to do it because you know, if you don't take the use a technology angle to reduce costs and make it affordable and just say, oh, at the end of patent life, we're going to make it affordable, that just doesn't work. You know, that's going to mean that for these these patients are going to wait 20 years to get these therapies. And I, I don't think that's the responsible way to approach it. So um, over time, as we get more de-risking of the platform and technology, I'm going to spend an increasing amount of time thinking about that angle. You know, it's it's really great you mentioned that. And I think we live in a global world. And in fact, if anything, the COVID-19 has showed us this, right? I mean, you know, uh, I've, uh, you know I, I've, I've always said, you have to vaccinate as many people outside of the US uh, because, you know, we live in a global world and people travel and so on. It, you know, it, it makes, I mean, uh, I realize we're talking about even a fourth shot right now. And I'm thinking, you know what? probably we should focus on people who haven't gotten the first shot elsewhere if, if possible. So there's a lot of truth to what you're saying. And I'm as passionate as you are about this. I think it's very important. I come obviously from underserved country as well, where there was really no vaccines for a long time. And, and not only that, uh, we, you know, at least where I come from, you didn't really have the luxury of doing Zoom all the time, right? I mean, you can't, you know, we take that for granted here that I could do Zoom and do Netflix and order my food and, and it comes to my door. Well, that doesn't happen in Syria. Uh, sorry to say, I mean, people still have to go to work. So I cannot agree with you more. I, I actually love hearing that. I think you, uh, and I, I look forward to continuing to follow your, your work and, um, and, if, uh, and I'll, I'll be cheering for you all along. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me, Jody. Okay, folks, thanks for listening and thanks for joining me on Healthcare Unfiltered. I appreciate you uh, being on uh, a loyal listener. And if you continue to be, please email me, text me, or message me on Twitter at Shadi Nabhan and request the famous Healthcare Unfiltered t-shirt. Come to think of it, I actually forgot to tell Sam if he wants a t-shirt. I need to reach out to him. Okay, don't forget to subscribe to the show and rate the show. And please write a brief review to the show. By doing so, you are going to help disseminate the information about this healthcare podcast. And I'm sure one of your friends are go is going to have some of these topics of interest to him or her. And before I let you go, I would like to leave you with a saying by Winston Churchill. We make a living by what we get, but we make a life by what we give. Until next time.